Each new challenge also provides a new opportunity for us to reinvent the industry and reconsider ways in which we've done things in the past. This is why the registry continues to provide industry insights through personal interviews with the leaders who are shaping real estate each and every day. By subscribing to our podcast, you are helping us in our work, and we will continue to deliver programming such as the one you're about to hear. Please click the subscribe button and let your friends and colleagues know about us. It will help you and the industry stay ahead of the game. Jonathan Adele is the President and Chief Investment Officer of Rancho Santa Margarita, California-based Kairos Investment Management, a commercial real estate investment firm focused on acquisition, asset management, and development of a mix of property types that over time have invested over $1 billion in more than 12 million square feet of commercial space, including 11,000 multifamily units. Jonathan is responsible for overseeing all those activities, including business planning, sourcing and structuring of construction, mini-perm, permanent debt, and joint venture financing, among other roles. Jonathan's experience spans over three decades across the industry, including roles as an investment director and chief financial officer of Bellevue, Washington-based Snitzer West from 2003 to 2006, and a director of the corporate finance group in the investment banking division of Merrill Lynch. Jonathan, good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you, Vlad. Thank you for the time. Where do we find you today? Where are you? I'm in uh, Rancho Santa Margarita in Southern California, okay. which is in Orange County. Okay, excellent. So you're, you're not getting quite the weather that the rest of the country is getting over there? No, it's a little chilly, but nowhere near as bad as Houston and the roving power outages that we, uh, we hear about in Texas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Jonathan, by way of uh, introduction, tell us a little bit about yourself and your firm how you got there and how, you know, the winding road of uh, your career sort of got you where, where, where you are today. Sure. Well, the firm Kairos Investment Management is a SEC registered investment advisor, and we've been around for about 15 years. I came to Kairos uh, in the beginning at its founding with Carl Chang, our CEO and, our, and my partner in the business. But before that, I was an investment banker at Merrill Lynch and the real estate group doing REITs and, and M&A and kind of thing for at 11 years. Um, and then I was CFO of a development firm up in the Northwest called Snetzer Northwest, now called Snetzer West, for about three years. And um, kind of discovered that development was not my risk profile. Yeah. For various reasons, decided to move on and, and uh, come to Kairos with Carl. Great, great. And tell us a little bit about what has been the focus of, of your firm. You know, how do you guys do what you do? Sure. We're, we're pretty value-oriented uh, when it comes to buying real estate. And so we um, had a focus at the firm for obviously uh, then buying it, hopefully what we believe is to be good prices. <laughs> yeah. But that's really led to being also strategy-focused in, in areas that are um, products that are really growing and, and benefiting from uh, really the millennial generation growth and population. So we've been heavy in multifamily for most of our history. Okay. And geographically, we've been heavy in what I would call strong secondary cities, not really the big urban downtowns that the institutions are focused on, but rather, you know, sort of uh, one to two runs down, but not tertiary cities where there's good growth, good job growth, good population growth, and also good education levels. And I think that uh, really one of the things that makes us a little different is focusing on that asset level where we're kind of above the small investor, the mom and pop individual investor, but below sort of the large institutions that are putting really big dollars out. 
Yeah, yeah, there seems to be a sweet spot, I think, for a lot of different opportunities there. But you're you're not just doing multifamily, right? You are you invest in other in other sort of food groups, if you will, in the commercial real estate space, right? Correct. We we have done quite a bit of retail in our past, although uh, for maybe what seems like obvious reasons now, <laughs> yeah. we've been selling off for quite a while and have very little left. Uh, we do have some office exposure, uh, and we have done. You know, some other uh, interesting, you know, niches. Uh, we're doing a storage deal now and um, also have done, I guess I'd call them hospitality conversions to multifamily, which aren't quite multifamily. Okay. But, interesting. Uh, okay. You know, a little, little bit different. Yeah. Is that a recent development or, or just something that you guys kicked off even, even prior to the pandemic? Very recent development. Traditionally, in a recession, uh, hospitality properties don't drop below sort of 50% occupancy, which makes them retain a lot of value in operations. With the pandemic, they obviously dropped to 20 and 30 range of occupancy. Yeah. And that is so weak that anything that was really on the lower end, but in a good location, had an opportunity to convert, um, which just doesn't happen very often. I mean, the, the only times that's ever happened in my career has been 9-11 in the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. So you said you're in these secondary cities, but are you kind of looking at the central business districts of those markets, or are you in the in the suburbs, a little bit of a mix? How do you look at those opportunities? It's a little bit of a mix. The central business district in these secondary cities sometimes can be uh, relatively small yeah, or relatively expensive, and you can get a lot of value in being um, in the suburbs. But the inner ring of the suburbs where uh, maybe older B apartments are, are particularly interesting to us because they're well-located, easy to commute, have a lot of amenities and built up around them, but are not the same prices as the downtown assets that require higher rents for probably being vertical construction or wrap construction, which are newer and more expensive types of construction. Yeah. On the multifamily stuff, do you guys do value add kind of stuff? Will you buy like a like a B asset and try to, you know, bring it to like an A or A minus asset or or is it just sort of a purchase and hold strategy? You know, we, we have three strategies that we invest through. One is a value add strategy where, like you said, we're we're really improving the unit, giving the uh, renter a better value um, in rent for a higher execution compared to say older product but also cheaper than newer product, right? So it's like a value proposition. We also have an affordable housing impact fund, which is a little bit lighter on the value add side, but does a lot of environmental improvements um, and runs social programs. And those environmental improvements, uh, we also do in a lot of properties that are not in that strategy. And then we have a, um, a credit strategy where we're really doing a lot more of our commercial exposure in there and in our value-add strategy, obviously, the affordable housing strategy does not have uh, commercial in it. Yeah, interesting. So you have this uh, perspective on the market that is uh, wide geographically, but also wide from a you know product point of view. Also, given everything that's going on, you probably have a better <laughs> better understanding of kind of where things are than you know most folks from kind of like a national point of view. Tell us, you know, what what are what are things that are popping up that are you know, maybe not obvious, but things that you're identifying as being super interesting in kind of what, what is happening today. Sure. So, you know, a lot of press has, has um, talked about the K-shaped recovery, which obviously they, they talk more about it from a socioeconomic perspective as far as what jobs are doing well, which ones are not. In, in our parlance, that's really which products are doing well, right? And so industrial properties, which are part of the infrastructure of, of delivering products through internet and 
you know, delivery and not having to go out shop on retail. So industrial has done really well, if not overheated a little and changed a little because there's really different product types now than there used to be. It used to be very, very similar product. And what I mean by that is Amazon and Walmart have really taken industrial properties to a new technological level right. and how they right. operate, you know, versus say the average manufacturing property. Yeah. Uh, and tenant. scale as well, I would argue, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the, these are logistics. There's always been logistics geniuses, but this is, these are systems that are really pretty fantastic. And then we, we see apartments doing uh, well as well, I would say on the upper level of decay. Um, and in particular, B apartments and, and affordable apartments actually have better collections than market rate apartments, principally because they tend to be attractively priced. Well, collections are off in multifamily a little bit across the nation. I think the average was about 94, 95% across the nation. Okay. So, so still pretty high compared to, say, 98, 99 uh, without the recession. Uh, and without the pandemic, and with fiscal stimulus, I would expect you know that to see a bump up because it, it was a little higher earlier in the pandemic when there was more fiscal stimulus. The lower leg, we all know, hospitality has been crushed. We all know that malls and, and lifestyle centers are not doing well. Other retail sectors, like essential retail, like a grocery store, is still doing reasonably well, but on a value and investor basis, is not very attractive and still on that lower part of the K. And so is office space, which is interesting because I, I think that's sort of a, a less known the of the outcome. I mean, work from home has become popular. That has helped apartments and particularly larger apartments that are older and B to be more relevant. But how much you're going to go to the office is still very much in question. Yeah. And from a geographic point of view, are you noticing any distinctions in the market? You know, certain parts of the market are doing well or perhaps certain markets where certain industries are more prevalent are doing better. What's your perspective on that? You know, we, we definitely saw major downtowns like New York, San Francisco, and Seattle get hit very hard. People didn't want to be downtown with COVID. And, uh, you know, office properties from a utilization perspective, for those that are in occupancy, it's only about 15 or 20% for, for those kinds of buildings. So downtowns in particular, the more or the more urban they are, the, the, the worse the problem has been. So there's been a little bit of a fleeing to suburbs. And um, so you've seen some areas do really well. There's also been some anomalies. So Phoenix, for instance, has done fabulously well. Uh, I actually saw, saw rent growth, uh, of all things, in apartments during the last uh, year, where, say, New York and, and, and San Francisco and Seattle are really down, you know, double-digit percentages in rent. The other anomaly is you know, the amount of kind of uh, shutdown is different in the different areas. Some of it's political, some of it's just exposure to the virus and how, uh, how much it's, it's surging. But the Southeast, for instance, has not had as much lockdown as, say, the coast. Right. Are so you... there's a lot of overlapping themes there. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 for sure. For sure. And one of the things that, that you know, you know, we obviously focus on, on the commercial real estate space off, it seems to be kind of the topic that we often talk about and you know compare so it's interesting you know you're you're uh, you're seeing some some softness there obviously which you know you're you're obviously not not the only one but 
are, are you noticing any of, you know, there's some stories, especially around the Bay Area and sort of, you know, folks moving out, you know, that kind of thing. Do you think that's having an impact also? Or do you think it's just a general sort of pause and companies are just kind of trying to wait and see where things land in terms of uh, overall occupancy and sort of how they intend to use the office space going forward? It's a great question. I think it it, it starts to to beg the the question of, well, we may not know the ultimate result of office. We may know directionally some of the things that are occurring. One of those things is our collections have been relatively good. Office tenants tend to be better credit for higher quality properties, and, and we've seen good collections, and I know other people that are as well. On the other hand, we've definitely seen with COVID generally an acceleration of change. Uh, that's sort of been like the one theme that everybody seems to agree on is COVID accelerated change. Yep. And so we saw a lot of net migration moving out of, say, the Bay Area into uh, Texas uh, in particular. You know, we saw HP move to Spring, Texas, just outside Houston. We also saw some pretty major moves into the Austin area, not just growth, but but companies uh, that have been long, around for a long time in the Bay Area. And we, we saw some also go to um, Bellevue on the east side of, of Seattle, uh, not downtown. And a lot of people said, okay, you can work remotely and we're moving the headquarters. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you say we're going to work remotely, the question starts to become, okay, well, do they, those people then move out of Silicon Valley or at least move further out uh, so that when they do want to go to an office a couple of days a week, you know, they maybe have a longer commute, but they got cheaper overhead? Or do they move somewhere else in the country, period? Because at some point, that company's going to adjust pay to not have to worry about people living in the Bay Area anymore and the high cost of living there. And a company is going to be rational about that and at some point say, hey, I can, I can hire anyone nationally to work from home. Yeah. I don't need, I don't need the, the location in, in San Francisco. So I think there's going to be some consequences over the next couple of years for larger companies that are allowing to work from home for their employee base in their cost structure. Because remember, for technology companies, the real estate was never terribly expensive, but the, but the labor was. And so the labor by extension as a derivative cost was expensive because of the location. And so if you can decentralize your, your labor, you can lower your cost. And I think that's something that's going to take a couple of years to play out. Yeah. Even, even if it means there's some office space. Yeah. So Jonathan, you've been, this is not your first rodeo. You've been through a couple of these over time through, you know, different parts of the industry also, both as a developer, as an investor, right? How do you see kind of what's happening from kind of a macroeconomic point of view, you know, with with this particular cycle? Obviously, this one's new because it's caused by a pandemic rather than sort of market forces. But I'd like to just kind of get your perspective on, you know, what, what does that mean and how do you kind of economically see that playing itself out? Well, I think there's comparisons historically to past recessions and then what do we think is going to happen going forward and what we're told the Fed is going to be doing. In the past recessions, and I've unfortunately I'm old enough to have been through four of them. <laughs> I've seen, you know, some short ones and some long ones. And actually, you could argue I've been through five. But the long ones, the early 90s and the global financial crisis, were more financial system problems that, that were infecting the whole country, all jobs. Whereas like 9-11 and, and the pandemic were, had some isolated jobs that were um, affected more, uh, in particular hospitality and hourly wage uh, jobs in the pandemic. And in 9-11, travel and hospitality were certainly hit harder than other parts of the economy. Yeah. But the 
shortness and severeness of the recessions in in 9-11 and the pandemic to me feel more like because they didn't infect the financial system you know kind of five inning games you know little league games not extra inning games like the 90s and the global financial crisis i mean there was a statement in the early 90s you know 92 93 where people said we have more office space than we could ever use period in history <laughs> and of course we filled up all the office space by 97 98 <laughs> so the absolutes are always almost always never right one of the things that we've heard from the fed is interest rates lower for longer and with the debt load of the country, uh, as far as debt to GDP goes, a lot of people are espousing the idea that there will be some inflation above interest rates. So we'll have a negative real interest rates, which will help depreciate the debt that the country holds. And it's a way of deleveraging long term, like we did after World War II. We are believers that that is what will happen, maybe not to the extent or length of time after World War II. But it does mean lower interest rates for longer which should be good for cap rates across the board in, in real estate. Do you think that that will also be a cause for a you know bigger rebound or uh, sort of a you know sustained kind of health of the industry throughout the next few years? I think so, but it's not an absolute. It does lift all. It is a tide that lifts all boats. But to give you an example, some of the specialization that has occurred in in our economy over the years has has also occurred in real estate. We now have data centers, storage properties all kinds of niches that are doing quite well in the pandemic, even though retail will continue to have a problem because we're over-retailed. And office space, you know, is still, as I said, a question mark, right? I mean, you know, we used to talk about needing to size our office space needs at 65% of, of uh, the population that you're serving in the, in the property because, you know, you have people in business travel sick and on vacation, well, it might need to be 80% or 85% now because people are traveling less and using Zoom and Teams, yeah. but still traveling you know, once or twice, right? So how much of it's going to be work from home? How much of it's going to be I need to have a office, not maybe as much? And how much of it's going to be I need that office more often because I'm not traveling as much too, right? So there's some offsetting kind of forces that will play out in office over time. I think ultimately it recovers maybe a little longer than than other property types. Yeah. But ultimately it will. Yeah, interesting. So Jonathan, this is a very disruptive time, but also a time of opportunity. What are you guys doing during this time to kind of, you know, prepare for the next cycle? And does that mean, you know, wholesale change of what you guys are doing? Or does it mean incremental change? And you know, anything you can share uh, you know, about how you guys are seeing this as a as a time of opportunity. You know, on the opportunity side, we are, there's property type and geographic location, and I'll hit geographic location first. One, the cities that we invest in don't change that often. Cities move pretty slowly. You, you know where the net migration's been to for the last 20 years, right? So occasionally you add a city, but really the next level down is submarket uh, moves. And so those can be particularly important, and, and that's where our focus is now. Uh, occasionally you're adding a city, though. And then... On the product type side, we still think the demographics support a rentership society and multifamily. We do think there'll be some opportunities in hospitality and office in particular, although we are not fans really of, of retail long term. And, and I think there are other segments that, like industrial, where we just think it's priced pretty aggressively and we're just not attracted to it today. It doesn't mean it wouldn't be more attractive in a year or two. Yeah. 
but it's a very popular area right now. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. As is life science probably too. That seems to be another one of these sectors that's popping up quite a bit. Absolutely. But life sciences takes a lot of money per foot to get into and yep. some expertise, which we don't necessarily have today. But industrial is actually the cheapest to build of all the commercial property types and therefore the quickest to adjust and supply. Yep. So the pricing mechanism and the demand for it can really be adjusted for very quickly, whereas maybe life sciences can be more of a uh, pent-up demand. Yeah. And if you if you were to kind of, you know, take a 30,000-foot view of the industry, how, how do you think the industry, like where where is the industry moving to? Where are they looking at the opportunities at this point in time? Well, I think the institutional world will always wait for a lot of proof before they, they move. And to a certain extent, for investors like ourselves, our job is to be ahead of the institutional world. So the institutional world, when they see a recession, they just take a break. They say, we're not going to buy. We, d- we did invest during the pandemic, but I think a lot of institutions took a break uh, and waited for, okay, when, does, when is there going to be clarity to, to move forward and make some investments? So I think looking out for those institutions and where they're going in right now is, is important. Certainly industrial has been the place that we've seen a lot of activity. Apartments too, um, to a lesser extent, but there's more institutional demand in storage now than there ever was before. Oh, interesting. That niche is now growing up, I would say. Yeah. And life sciences, like you said, has been very popular institutionally as well. Yeah. On the institutional side, do you see you know, more allocation towards the real estate sector? Do you see new players coming in? Do you see, you know, foreign investors? You know, I don't know if you work with any of them, but just just from your observation of, of the of the industry overall, you know, how is that playing itself out? I think with interest rates as low as they are and with the expectations of interest rates to stay low for a while, people are feeling good about their allocations to real estate and tend to be wanting to allocate more to it. Particularly with the stock market having staying at, at highs the allocation need to sort of catch up on the real estate side, which is slower moving, uh, tends to, to be there. But also as a yield alternative, when you can't make any yield in the in the debt markets, has made real estate more popular as well. So, you know, as you might expect, like even yield stocks like a REIT stock have become pretty good options for people looking for yield, just yeah. like private real estate does for institutions and, and private investors as well. So the yield play is uh you know, there is a there is a search for yield. Yeah, do you anticipate then that some of these institutional folks will come, you know, down market for what you're essentially going after? Is that is that a possibility? Certainly, I think in Seattle and you know the Bay Area, we've seen some big players come in and you know acquire things, you know, for less than twenty million dollars, which we think is sort of interesting. Is that is that a you know it's you know something you're concerned about also that you might have more competition in in your side of the world? I think there's versions of it that institutions tend to take a path of least resistance uh, approach, in my opinion. So, you know, they'll certainly, the idea of going from a downtown to a suburb or to a secondary city has become more popular, both because of population and income growth, but also because those cities have become more acceptable for institutions as, you know, the workforce has moved and the pandemic has hit in particular. That's an acceleration of a trend that we saw a long time ago that we feel is, is confidently moving in our direction. On the on the deal size basis, though, it's a very inefficient for institutions to go to say twenty million. I think you know, and this is just for sort of a common sense approach to it, but they're more likely to go from fifty to thirty five to to thirty and work their way down, and also work their way down 
uh, sort of newer product to older product, well, it does lift all boats in the area. It's going to take them a while to really get fully into these secondary markets and, and product types that are smaller. And they tend to like to aggregate. So selling a portfolio to an institution is something that you see a lot with B apartments. They don't necessarily want to buy a $20 million apartment, but if you can put together three of them for 50, they will. Yeah. And so I think that trend will continue to gain uh, momentum. Yeah. Interesting. So Jonathan, as my kind of final question, uh, given everything that's going on, given everything, you know, the, the, you know, we've seen the news and sort of happening across the industry overall, what gives you hope about, you know, commercial real estate in this year and in the years to come? Well, I mean, it's hard not to have hope when you're sitting at the um, uh, in a pandemic with finally vaccines <laughs> rolling out and caseloads declining and hopefully continuing. And I, I do believe that as a country, we're going to see spread of the economic forces that have really helped downtowns uh, and cities spread to suburbs and secondary markets in a more significant way over the next decade. And I think that's a higher quality of life for people in the country. And that includes, you know, really all income levels because it is easier to live in a secondary city at a lower income than it is in a city. To, you know, and so the, the jobs are moving there. Yeah. That's really a benefit to the country. Uh, and that, that gives me hope. And then, you know, I do think product wise, you know, we have lots of options to be, um, optimistic about. And, and it's not just fixing up old stuff, which I tend to, to like generally better. It's a better utilization of societal resources. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, I do think that uh, we have lots of cities that will gentrify. And I don't mean it in the way that a lot of people are like worried about in neighborhoods where they're getting pushed out. You know, we made an investment in a, in a couple of assets in Pittsburgh recently. And Pittsburgh had shrank for 40 years and has now stopped shrinking for the first time in 40 years. Well, that also means that there's 40 years worth of real estate that was underutilized that you can now reutilize and uh, can make new again and, and add value to. So to me, that's not gentrification in the sort of bad word way of, uh, of an inner city. That's a reutilization of, of, uh, of societal resources in a city that is really getting a rebirth. So I, I'm excited for what COVID has accelerated, which is obviously bad news that we had to go through the pandemic for this to happen. Yeah. But, you know, there's going to be unintended consequences 10 years from now that we see probably in healthcare and vaccines, but also in real estate that we're going to look back on and say, wow, that, that was really significant. And it was really a good and positive result that was unanticipated and better than we could have hoped for. Yeah. Jonathan, thank you very much for your time. Stay safe and uh, look forward to connecting with you soon again. Thank you a lot. Appreciate the time.